Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab in LA. Today, I'm joined by the one and only. You can't clap for yourself. <laughs> and supremely brilliant, Ali Willis. Uh, yo, the f- crowds are applauding. <laughs> the Grammy winning. I don't even need to do this intro. <laughs> the Grammy winning songwriter and hitmaker who was inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame last year for writing such classics as September, Boogie Wonderland with Earth, Wind and Fire, Neutron Dance for the Pointer Sisters, the Friends theme tune, the Color Purple musical, and a personal favorite of mine, You're the Best. Around! Wow. (laughs) Getting to play September with her at the LA Times news story that I curated last year was a personal life highlight. And in addition to all of this, Ali is also the world's greatest kitsch collector, multimedia artist, writer, party thrower, early cyber pioneer, and basically the queen of Detroit. She has also been described... <laughs> Look at all the Detroiters applauding. Look at all these seals clapping in here. Um, <laughs> Closer to home than you yeah. know. Okay. <laughs> She's also been described as one of the most dangerous subversives living in the U.S. Yep. So, Ali, is there anything else that I've missed? There's a lot that you've missed. <laughs> okay, but come- we have been friends for so long that should have been four times as long. But no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think I chose Otis, Dock of the Bay? Uh, okay, A, absolutely one of my favorite songwriters of all times. And I was in Madison, uh, Wisconsin, on December 10th, I think, uh, to, uh, 1968, and when his plane crashed. And I, it, it was a massive snowstorm, and you, you couldn't see a foot in front of your face. But it's almost like there was like a time shift where you heard this boom, and the snow just flurried, like someone sliced it in half. And I'm the only one that heard it. I was in a sorority house. Yes, it's true. And no one heard anything. And I was going to an Otis Redding concert that night. And we're waiting outside. It's 10 below zero. And they were not letting us in. And it was almost two hours after. And I, it just came into my head. Oh, my God, that was a plane crash. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Let me take this. That was the plane um, crash sound, it was, sound effects. <laughs> it was a plane crash. And um, then, you know, the they put a bullhorn out the window and announced it. And I rushed, rushed back because I lived right on a lake. And was, uh, Madison has a lot of lakes. And I went right to uh, Lake Minona. And I did literally sit on the dock for three days. Um Watching everything from uh, Carla Thomas, who Otis did tons of, you know, duets with, walking across the ice to identify the body. I saw everything lifted up. It was so uh, traumatic because there were no thoughts in my head yet of being a songwriter. But, oh, my God, this guy was king. A lot of people did not know about 
Otis Redding. You know, if you were white, you had to seriously be into soul music to know. So he was just, you know, hitting it. But um, yeah, so I've always felt an affection. And then through the years, I've had like kind of interaction with his uh, family, uh, his yeah, nephews, his nephews, not realizing that there was any connection. They just had this. They tracked me down on Facebook. They stayed on me for years, really, uh, to write with them. They were young. One was like 18. One was 22. Uh, And they finally, you know, flew out to L.A. I had an immediate thing with them. We wrote great together, worked great together. And they kept talking about their uncle. And I finally said, well, who's your uncle? And they said, well, you know our last name. And I said, no, I know your rap names. You know, I, I don't know your real name at all. And one of them threw a checkbook over to me and it was Redding. And I said, oh, my God, I saw the plane crash. So... Um, uh, you know, I feel an, an, just an incredible draw. Mm. And, and plus, he was just a masterful, forget about the voice, forget about what he looked like, which was incredible. But, um, you know, just as a songwriter. Yeah. I mean, brilliant songs. And as a human being. And, yeah, yeah, that's what everyone says who yeah. knew him. And he was only 28, <laughs> which is crazy. But that story about you... You know, literally sitting on the dock of the bay yeah. and having that experience, which is so fascinating that no one else heard the crash. I mean, yeah. that's unique in itself. I'm sure that there are people in Madison, mm. but within this sorority house, it was like we heard nothing. And to me, it was like, oh, my God, like a bomb has just gone off. And then having his nephews come and seek yeah, you like out years 40, later. 50, like yeah. 40 years later or whatever it was. It was crazy. Do you feel that um, you've had a lot of serendipitous experiences my, like that? My life is uh, 100% full of that. My career certainly is. Nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing happening. And then something so like massive drops from the heavens and sends me off in a new direction. So um, I don't, you know, in my old age, I just kind of sit back and try and keep myself calm in the in-between periods. But um, and I always have links. Something that happened 30 years ago, boom, pops in today, all of a sudden relevant. It all makes sense. Mm. So I meet people that way. I have career events that way. It's pretty crazy. So the subject of this show, and it is going to be an impossible feat to try and cram one hour of your orange juice for the years um, into into existence. I mean, we're going to do it. It's going to happen. But, you know, a lot's going to be left Crack out. Whip. Yep. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of this show is to look at music um, just as something that goes very deep, which I don't need to say to you. And the title of the show is taken from an Oliver Sacks quote about the power of music and, you know, how it can uh, lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. Totally. And it's a tonic, a remedy in orange juice for the ears. So just, you know, unique to Ali Willis. Um, what does that quote, you know, mean to you? Well, I do love orange juice. And uh, it can literally be that. That's about it. (laughs) No, I I have always, first of all, you know, um, I don't know how to play music and I don't read music and I can't notate music, but I hear every single note in my head. 
which is probably why I'm known as a lyricist, which drive me, drives me nuts because I always write the music as well. But I've always felt that it, it is such an honor to be doing this because you have these vibrations hitting you mm. and vibrations affect the body. Um, so it, it is incredible. I feel like it's, you know, uppers or, uh, you know, just something that is just constantly lifting me up. And then if I enjoy my collaborator... Because I don't, I used to love writing alone, and I do love writing like my shows alone and stuff like that. For but for a song, I I I love having someone to bounce it off of. Yeah. And if you're friends, um, if you're friends, you you didn't get that reference. Yeah, of course I did. Okay, I was just letting you finish you. the sentence. I'm sorry I didn't uh, clap. <laughs> it, no, if you're friends, then you end up having this great time. Yeah. And you get to know someone in a different way than if you were just having a conversation. So I enjoy the the whole process of it. And I am someone who's far more interested in the process than the actual finished piece. I mean, I'm happy I have the finished piece. But the interesting thing to me is the journey along the way. And if you're lucky enough to be doing music... Um, you know, it's more than just this thing you're turning out. It's constantly feeding back to you, affecting you emotionally, physically, everything. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, you're wearing a Detroit t-shirt right now. I'm wearing a, yeah, yeah. complimentary. <laughs> so, Beverly Hills Hotel <laughs> colors. Original <laughs> Beverly Hills Hotel colors. They fucked it up with that, like, orangey yeah, I agree. stuff in there now. Do you think growing up in Detroit when Motown Records was coming up had a big impact on you? Had, uh, like, you know, <laughs> yes, like 12 Mack trucks hitting a flea. Yes. Um, uh, it, music in Detroit uh, saved me. My mom passed away when I was pretty young, and but I had just got my driver's license. In Detroit, you were getting your license at 14 because, you know, at that uh, time in the 60s, because they were, you know, moving the cars along as fast as they could. So I would just lock myself in my car and drive for hours and hours. And black radio in Detroit was incredible. There was one specific uh, DJ, Martha Jean, the queen, also had a lot to do with promoting, you know, Motown, the hometown music. And I would listen to her religiously exposed me to a different kind of music than they were playing on the the white pop stations. Um, and beyond anything, I just worship Motown. And the fact that that was coming up when I was growing up, um, it, everyone in Detroit took pride in that. And the city to this day is so musical. You just, you can feel the pavement mm. popping. And I um, would at first get dropped off, and then when I got my license, constantly drive down to Motown, just this tiny little house. And I would go sit on the lawn. And uh, the walls were so thin, you could hear the music leaking through them. And so I would learn drum fills and bass lines, you know, before I knew <laughs> what records they were part of. Background vocals, uh, you know, and those are like my favorite three components of a record to this day. But I still write the same way 
I guess that I was listening then, because I certainly wasn't writing music then and never dawned on me till the minute it happened that I would ever be a songwriter. But just these notes and these figures floating into my head. So there is no question I never would have been a songwriter, ever. Um, and so, like, with that as, like, the perfect segue, what do you remember the first song that really imprinted on you? Um, I'm going to say the song that imprinted on me... Um, because I had other favorite songs mm. before this, but in terms of, oh, there's something really happening there. It was uh, 1962. Uh, I guess I would have been 14, something like that, 13, 14. And uh, Bye Bye Baby by Mary Wells, which was a very early Motown record. And she had the records that she got famous for, like My Guy. Uh, her voice was higher, but on Bye Bye Baby, it was this scratchy, gravelly, like you knew she meant every word. And this is still my favorite kind of recording. So where it feels like someone just like pushed a button and you just started. So it sounds like it was recorded in a basement. Um, it's just got this live, raw feel to it. And I, I just kind of noticed everything about it. Whereas before that, I'm, I'm listening to a whole record and going, I like that song, I don't like that song. Okay, so let's take a listen to Bye oh. Bye Baby by Mary Wells. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know you took Can I make two observations, even though it's your radio show? <laughs> Absolutely. I'll just say that that was Bye Bye Baby by Mary Wells. And that was the track that Ali Willis chose as the first song that really imprinted on her as a 13, 14 year old growing up in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, I, I did take the liberty while you were playing it, A, to text, but B, to look up. Who wrote that song? And she wrote that song, which oh, wow. I never was aware of. And there were very few female songwriters around, you know, in those days. I could also swear it had background vocals mm. on it. Um, so I need to track down if there were other versions, because I hear them in my head. Um, but maybe I was just always so obsessed with background vocals. Or Stone. I... <laughs> I was not stoned <laughs> at 13. Okay. <laughs> Maybe 15. No, no, no. I wait. I did not until I was 30. So give me a bit more of a sense of what your early life was like. We, like, were your parents musical? Did your siblings introduce you to m music? Um, my sister, who was uh, seven years older than me, did have a record collection. So, and, and she, you know, had them. You always had a little record box. And as soon as she would leave the house, I would dump all the records out and it would have to put them back in order. And so I remember being intrigued really early. I remember having favorite songs, but not to the point where I felt this primal pull to it like I did with the Mary Wells record. Um, but in Detroit in those years, it was such a golden city. It was the fourth richest city in the United States. It was so stylish because of the cars. 
And so all kinds of designers, fashion designers, like, you know, product designers were flocking to the city. And cars were relatively cheap and they'd try and sell everyone new cars every year. So the parade of colors and chrome and just individuality, um, it, 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 it was just the sharpest looking and feeling city. And then all of a sudden you had a soundtrack mm. that went along with it, which the whole world was aware of. Um, even though in Detroit, uh, you know, that's practically all you heard. It wasn't mixed in with other stuff, even other soul stuff so much. So it was just a really exciting time where you felt like you were on the tip of innovation, style, and life in, in general. So I know that you have never had any traditional music lessons <laughs> training. However, right. hang on yeah, a second. Sure but you, there, there is a story about you going to a, a, have your first guitar lesson um, and that guitar and how that guitar <laughs> came back to you many years later at a reunion. Yes. So what was, what was that? Okay. I bought a guitar, first of all, 1960 folk music really leapt on the scene. And so songs like If I Had a Hammer... Uh, just these very traditional kind of folk songs, people were having hits with them. Uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and then Dylan, you know, came along. And uh, so parties at that point where you would get together and sing were called Hootenannies. And there was also a show called Hootenanny. And um, so I, my parents threw a lot of parties, not as extreme as the ones I have gone on to throw, but they were entertaining a lot. Um, and my sister's, you know, records came into that and my love of junk food came into that. Um, I totally forgot what the question was, but I, <laughs> um, that's fine. No, 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 wait, I want to wrap it up though. What was the exact so question? The, the one and only guitar lesson you had. The guitar. Yeah. Okay. So I, um, I had a little, uh, like newspaper route and I would also mow lawns and I would get 50 cents, and I saved up, and I went to a, you know, a music store, bought the cheapest guitar, I think it was $35, and I would throw these hootenanny parties. But I would never really learn anything other than the songs we were doing. Then it dawned on me I could make more money if I gave guitar <laughs> lessons. And I then enrolled in a little six-week course at the Jewish Community Center. And they would give you these little sheets, uh, you know, instructions to take home. They were mimeographed. This was pre-Xerox. So that purple ink fading into the paper, it's just the texture, the look, the whole thing killed me. So I would, you know, take the lesson each week. Then I would go to my elementary school at that point and um, run their mimeograph machine. You know, I would sneak in there when no one was there and I'd run off like 10 lessons. And then I think it was 50 cents a lesson I charged. And I taught, I had six students and my mom would like drop me off at their house. I would teach them the lesson that I had, but by the fourth or fifth lesson, it wasn't working because they were practicing. 
And I was just hustling guitar lessons. <laughs> like, I never practiced. I never, like, did any of it. It was all about the smell of the and the sound of the mimeograph <laughs> machine and collecting my $3 in total for the lessons. So I, I had to quit. And, and I was too embarrassed to continue lessons at the Jewish Center. So you've had some formal training. <laughs> That was it. I tried to take piano a couple of times, but they make you do the scales. No, I hate it. I yeah. couldn't do it. And plus, I would start hearing melodies. So what's more important, the fingers work or I, I hum the melody into something? Okay, so moving on to the first album. And again, it, you know, a very difficult question, but a, a record that really had a big impact for you and Why? Um, I hope this is the one I told you, but I'm not sure it is. Uh, The Supremes sing Holland Dozier Holland. They were the first songwriters I was seriously aware of as far as pop music, soul music went. Um, And they were writing, um, uh, you know, mostly all of the Supreme hits. Uh, Well, everyone there was writing, but, you know, primarily they were like uh, Supremes, uh, Martha and the Vandellas, um, but but you know all the art, all the songwriters wrote kind of for all the artists, and a lot of these songs had been hits by other artists, but then the Supremes um, did all the other people's hits, mm. and that was the first time I became aware of cover records. Though I never liked anything as much as the originals, like. Martha and Vandellas have a distinct, like a really raw sound than the Supremes, who were more slick. I love them equally, but it was interesting for me to hear a different treatment of the same song. Even though the tracks were the same, I think. And that band, you know, Funk Brothers, who were not called that back then, the band and the sound of the instruments Mm. just killed me. So we'll go into it in more detail after, but um, let's listen to Where Did Our Love Go by the Supremes. The intro alone. That was The Supremes, Where Did Our Love Go? And that was Ali's choice for the album that really had a big impact on her. And just as we turned off the mics, what did you say? Well, I will, but then I have another observation. Um, I I don't remember. I know it had the word. Cardiac like, arrest. That, yeah, cardiac. From that those original what sounds like foot stomps and then they continue that boom, boom, boom. You know, just like a bar of it. And that... That little one bar footstep, it sounds like, foot stomp, but claps, I guess, uh, intro influenced me the rest of my career, like just set the rhythm up. Now, in listening to that song now, at this age of 143, um, it was 150. (laughs) Thank you. You're supposed to be lying on your Wikipedia page. the song is a little monotonous. I never realized really till now that it stays in one place, which is very much like today's music. That's actually a very contemporary sounding song as opposed to you're building from a verse to a B section to a chorus. Um, uh, and, and then the background vocals, the fact that the background vocals went throughout mm. the song 
uh, and and shaded it so much. So I I think in retrospect, background wise, that had a huge uh, impact on me. Well, and also the, the it's kind of quirky instrumentation, and there's this mix of it being actually pretty sad in terms of what you know she's saying what's being said but having this happy you know vibe to it which is kind of like boogie wonderland yeah it's well boogie wonderland really is about someone on the brink of suicide and people always say oh that song makes me so happy it's like have you listened to the (laughs) lyric but now that you say that though clearly 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 that's one of the most major influences of motown on me that you could take sad topics or heavy topics um, and put them into these songs with amazing grooves and your message would come across, but you're not like you're not putting the sad song into a very slow ballad. And that's something that I've taken advantage of my entire songwriting career. Make it upbeat, make it make people feel happy and they still are absorbing the lyric, even though they may not even be aware of what it's saying. Um, uh, and it's just a way of reaching uh, people. So, yes, absolute major influence on me in the lyric department. And you were 17 when that came out, around 17, uh, 64? I can't do math, yeah. but I'm going to say probably. And I, I think... That was that the, around the same time that your mom passed 17? away. Yes, no, but she. Oh boy! Now I have a debate with myself. Was I fourteen, fifteen, or sixteen? Well, you were fourteen <laughs> in nineteen thirty-four. <laughs> when you heard "Bye Bye Baby," you were fourteen. Fourteen, and that was nineteen sixty-one. Oh, yeah. Jesus. And then I was uh, I was thirteen. Then. Okay. Okay, thirteen. Um, but yeah. so, no, I just wondered if if that song connected with you because it was also around the time that you'd lost your mom. Or- uh, you, totally, like any music at that time, because music was my babysitter. Um, so uh, absolutely, I'm sure that's why I was so drawn to Martha Jean the Queen. She also had a very distinctive high speaking voice, and uh, it, it just calmed me down. I didn't. It's very much what the theme of Boogie Wonderland is. You know, you enter this state because of the music. And so whatever problems you may be experiencing in your everyday life and how bad that makes you feel, uh, the, the music can lift you up and you can escape for three minutes. But you went on to study journalism. Yes, at the University of Wisconsin, where I'm on my way. I just came back from... I got a, a distinguished alumni uh, award from the School of Journalism, but I'm going back in September, lucky month, um, and conducting the 350-piece marching band, playing a medley of my greatest hits at the homecoming game uh, in a, a, a stadium that seats 82,000 people, and I can't read music. And I did this once before, and my entire conducting 
consisted of <laughs> like air drumming with drumsticks. No one told me that a conductor only uses one <laughs> stick and they just make this kind of backwards L thing. And I'm like hitting all the fills and, you know, falling off the podium. So I'm about to do, uh, you know, recreate mm. that humiliation again very soon. Do you think um, coming from a journalism background and, and obviously being a writer, really, yeah. Um, did that give you a different approach when you did start writing songs? Yeah, absolutely. The um, I, I majored in journalism. I minored in advertising. And advertising in the 60s had kind of hit uh, a place it had never been before. Because commercials used to be very straight. And just, you know, you got an upset stomach, take Geritol or whatever it was. In the 60s, they started being very clever, and they were kind of the most popular thing in pop culture at that point. So um, I, you know, I learned the practical things of advertising, which was get to the point quick. You know, build it up, you just set it up right, make your point, leave. Uh, and that, uh, in lyric writing, is very important because some people start out with a thought. And then you're three and a half minutes later and they're still on the same thought. So I feel like my uh, background studies, as far as lyrics go, were very influenced because I knew the rules of good journalism. And I always wanted the story to push forward. So whenever I had control, which a lot of times if you're writing with an artist, you don't have the control you need to serve them and help them get across what they want to get across. But when I had control, I can see my, um, you know, college major and minor to this day influencing. And you moved, you know, from copywriting for record labels to, yeah. to songwriting and via having your own career as, you know, an, as an artist. But it wasn't conscious. Yeah. You know, I, I got a job at, at the biggest record company, which was Columbia Records uh, and Epic Records was part of that. And um, all of a sudden I'm writing the, uh, well, I started as a secretary, um, but I got promoted within a very short time to a junior copywriter, which meant you were writing the uh, radio commercials, print ads, and in a lot of cases, the liner notes on the back of the album. And I got to work with all these people who I completely idolized. Um, and I was put in charge of the minorities, which were all the black acts and all the female acts. And that was pretty much all I cared about musically anyway. Um, but, you know, I'm writing all this, uh, you know, pro it wasn't straight promotion. It was really, it had to be composed because it was an ad for like Miles Davis, Sly and the Family Stone. Last one I ever wrote was for Earth, Wind and Fire. That certainly pointed to Amazing. the future. Yeah. But then the females, uh, Janis Joplin, who passed away like days after I started there. But um, I slid in at the last minute. Uh, Barbara Streisand, and my main one was Laura Nero, who had a profound effect on me as a songwriter. But at that time, until I wrote my first song, it never dawned on me to be a songwriter. Mm. So we'll get to Laura later, because I know that, that was, that's also a choice for you. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about, you know, 
obviously with the theme of this show, looking at how music sort of is a savior, can be a savior. Yeah. Let's talk about 1978 and how you began that eating moldy pasta, a corner what, of that's a way tortellini. Too much of an English accent. <laughs> eating what? Moldy. Moldy. Pasta. Yes. Pasta. That's it for the English speaking people. That's pasta. Yes. Well, you know, this is a European audience as well. <laughs> oh. Well, all um, right. And ha- so how you were essentially on food stamps at that yeah, point. at dog food, ate dog food, yeah. And the transition from that to the end of the year. By the end of the year, I'd sold 10 million records. But still getting the food stamps, getting medical assistance, because the money is so delayed. Um, yeah, I... Um, so my my uh, my one and only album with the first ten songs I ever wrote came out in 1974, which is why I quit the record label because I became an artist on the record label, and I was extremely uncomfortable performing. Um, it just had really never been on stage before, and they put me out in front of ten thousand people, and it was one disaster after another. So um, I didn't want to play live. Got dropped from the label. Uh, by coincidence, day I'm dropped, someone takes me to a recording session. The singer ends up being the one person who has bought the album and uh, sent me home to write a song. So the day after I got dropped, I had my first cover. That was Bonnie Raitt. And I figured it's going to roll from here. And I would get one or two songs cut a year, but either not by a significant artist or not the single. So 1978, by this time I'm living in California, I was in New York, because if I'm going to starve to death, it's going to be in the sunshine. And um, friends of mine, uh, my best friends were the Harlettes, which were Bette Midler's backup group. And they got their own record deal. They were in San Francisco, where their producer David Rubinson was, and he was also producing Patti LaBelle. So Patty heard these songs of mine, which was really me tapping pencils together and singing along. And she flew um, me, they both flew me up to San Francisco to actually make demos of my songs. And Patty then started cutting my songs, became the first artist to regularly cut the songs. But when I got up to San Francisco, she said, I, you know, I have another friend here. And, uh, you know, he wants to write with you. And I thought, I am not going to be with a friend who's probably at my status. I'm with the big fish. I got to stay here. So I avoided the studio for days. And then I think on the third day, I'm in the hallway. That studio door is open. I see this must be the friend. He walks outside, duck into the bathroom. I have to go, so I sit on the toilet, and as I am tinkling away, <laughs> the bathroom door opens, and I hear these clumpy feet, and then and then there's these two male shoes sticking under the bathroom stall, and it's just this deep voice, you know, Patty says, you're a great writer, come into Studio B. Anyway, I'm trapped, I go into Studio B, he already had tracks ready, and there were an enormous amount of keyboards. I'd never seen that many keyboards, but I didn't know who it was. And I just thought, oh, you know, I have to do this. And he had like four songs he wanted to do. So we rip through these lyrically. 
And we were in the middle of the second and he gets a phone call. And it was the first time I had a chance to really stare at him because in those days they would bring the phone over to you and then you'd kind of turn sideways to try and have some privacy. So I'm staring at him and then I look at the keyboards and I go, oh my God, this is Herbie Hancock. So I ended up writing uh, a few songs on his album and he needed lyrics because it was the first time using a vocorder, which was, you know, there was a pipe yeah, Stevie Wonder used it yeah. a lot, yeah. And so Love you can it. talk the words, but the notes that you play will sing it in the, that melody. So I ended up being on the next couple of albums. So between Patty, Herbie, and then a, a friend of mine, um, Sleeping with Someone in Earth, Wind, and Fire, I eventually then met uh, Verdine White, who started writing with me, said, I'm going to tell my brother about you. And days later, I got a call from Maurice White uh, asking me if I wanted to write the entire next Earth, Wind and Fire album with him. Well, and we're going we're gonna to unpack that a bit in a minute. Um, but now let's move on to something. Did I answer what you asked me? That was or perfect. Did I go around? No, the no, block no, that's perfect. Okay. <laughs> it's just too much. Right. That's too much. Um, what music would you send into space, Ali Willis? Um. Okay. What you see? What you see? <laughs> I'd like. Did you hear her give me the hints to the answer I told her and forgot? Um, what you see is what you get. The dramatics. Uh, I never heard a record that ha- had all these stops and starts in it. Amazing horn lines, vocals, like brilliant. And I was visiting someone in California. It was only my second time here, and. It just felt like, even though it was Detroit, which I didn't know until a couple of years ago, actually, um, it just felt so California. It was open. It was full of, like, possibilities. And again, the spirit, the rawness, the track. Let's take a listen to What You See Is What You Get. It's because you're too interesting. You're the boss. You're too interesting, Ali. So that Uh, was What You See Is What You Get by The Dramatics. That is the track that mm. Ali Willis would send into space. Um, And so moving from space to your death, I'm I'm sure you will end up in space somewhere. Put me there. I was really good friends with Timothy Leary. Shoot me up the same way. Have you thought about the song that you would like to have at your memorial? Oh, without question. Um, I know it's a little conceited because I uh, was one of the songwriters on this, but without question, September, which is the happiest song ever. And um, yes, because I want, I'm going to plan my whole funeral. You think I'm going to let that as a party opportunity go? So everyone should go out to September. Well, I don't think it's conceited because I thought originally you wanted to pick September for every choice. (laughs) Um, And and that might have been conceited. That really would have been a Louis Armstrong on Desert Island Disc moment. Um, I would have left to my own devices, but... Um, and you, I remember you saying that, uh, you know, you came in happy, you're going to go out happy. Yeah. Uh, and for you, this is really 
the song happy, that represents happy, happy. your personality. Yeah, uh, without question. Yes, it's a party all the time. So let's have a listen to September by Earth, Wind and Fire and, yeah, take it from there. Song. I thought you were going to sing. You oh, said you were going to sing. And we say, Badia! I don't remember the words. <laughs> Badia! So you remember the Badia. And yes. wasn't, that, wasn't that a little bit controversial? Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, because of my journalism training and background in advertising, um, I uh, this song just felt like a stone cold hit from the second it was conceived. Um and it was uh, conceived as the third song in a trilogy, by the way, of two of the other happiest songs ever written. Uh, one was Sing a Song, Earth, Wind & Fire. One was Best of My Love, The Emotions. And those two had already been out and been hits. And uh, the, one of the only thing Maurice White told me he wanted in the song uh, was that it be the third song in this trilogy. And therefore, it had to be the happiest one of all. Um, but uh, because of, you know, this training I had in wordsmith, basically, I felt very strongly that if music was pulled out, the lyric should not just be sing-songy song lyrics. It should be a story or, a, you know, have some journalistic merit to it. And again, if you're writing for someone else, your job is half to do a good job writing, but half to make sure they get out what they want to say. And the song was way too simple for my tastes. Uh, you know, do you remember, 21st Night of September, Love Was Changing the Minds, didn't even have the of in there. Well, it Was Changing the Minds, Pretenders, what does that even mean? While Chasing the Clouds Away, which is a very general lyric line. So I would keep pushing for more and more distinctive lines. But once Maurice was happy, he was happy. So we get to the chorus, and he, you know, a lot of times when you write, I mean, I do this, you do probably do this, you have certain phrases that you always sing as you're forming melodies, and it just kind of helps you figure out the pocket of the song. Maurice would always say the phrase, body ah. And so, you know, the chorus was, you know, body ah, say do you remember, body ah, dancing in September, body ah. And I kept saying to him, we have to replace body ah with real words. This song is such a hit. So uh, originally he would just kind of put me off. We will do that, but we're not, you know, it's not affecting what the song is about. So we were writing an entire album, the I Am album, at the same time as writing September, which was meant to be the one new single that was going to go on Earth, Wind & Fire's Greatest Hits, Volume 1. And, and remember, I was on food stamps, so that thought alone was so mind-boggling to me. Um, but, you know, we work on September, and then you flip to a different song, and you're writing like 10 songs at once. But... There was a deadline, and September had to be done first. We're in the studio. You know, Badia is still there. And I am begging Maurice. I, I was actually on my knees. I'm grabbing his thigh. He had these unbelievably, incredibly <laughs> thin, muscular thighs. I remember 
that more than anything about this entire experience. But um, just begging him, you got to replace it with real words. And Maurice was very calm, very spiritual. I I was never around him when I even heard him raise his voice. And finally, you know, there's minutes to go. And I finally say, and I'm on the ground clutching him. And I I just said, you know, what the fuck does body arm mean? And he essentially said back to me, who the fuck cares? And I did learn the biggest songwriting lesson of my life. Um, These weren't the words that he told me. This is what I reduced it to. Never let the lyric get in the way of the groove. That if the feel of the song is right, the melody is right, all the components are right, you could talk gibberish and people are going to know what you mean and the whole spirit of september is just celebrate life basically maurice also said something else to you which you said had a profound impact you might have to tell me what that was which was that (laughs) that you were put here to communicate oh i asked him three or four years later i was at his house and i never understood why i was chosen for that big of a gig to write an entire Earth, Wind & Fire album at the height of their career to co-write. And he said to me, um, I had a vibe that you were put here as a communicator and that uh, messages would come through you. And uh, I, I felt like you could help me get my message out. And that blew my mind. And I, you know, the more I go through life, I go, oh my God, that guy real seriously saw who I was decades before I realized it. Was that that message the beginning of a different path for you? Um, I, well, I had started on a different path already because I became bored almost immediately after I started having hits. Because then every, you go from no one knows who you are to everyone in the world wants to work with you. And I was uh, getting a lot of tracks thrown at me uh, I think people assumed I was only a lyricist uh, because I'm working with, uh, you know, after Earth, Wind & Fire, it's like I work with tons of male groups. So they assume, oh, the chick, she must be the the, the lyric writer. I don't remember the question again, but was that anywhere near yeah, what well, I was? And also just like the fact that he was so spiritual yeah. and he gave you what could be seen as a kind of very weird message. And if you're not spiritual at that point or not open to alternative thinking. Well, the first thing he asked me, first thing was uh, if I knew about Eastern philosophies. And I literally had no idea what he was talking about. And I, I always used to say about myself, I was evolved as pop rocks, which I still eat, by the way. But, um... Uh, Yes, he saw in me a capability to absorb something that I wasn't aware of. And it took me many, many, many years to realize how incredible it was that I was put in that circumstance of working with a group that was that spiritual at a time when no one, forget about other groups, like no one was. um, And that it kind of gave me this life view of everything is connected. Uh, you do something bad. It's not. It doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone and eventually the world. Um, it just gave me this incredible overview of how to approach uh, life. But it took 
honestly, decades for me to understand that that had actually happened to me, that the biggest gift I was being given was not even the hit records. It was the philosophy of how to conduct your life. That's incredible. Um, and we're, we need to wrap up because, <laughs> oh my <laughs> but God. we, we can't wrap up yet without, um, and hopefully no one will turn up and we can just keep talking because so far it looks like <laughs> the, the next DJ They're is not, not here. Okay. Um, so moving on to the last of your orange juice for the years, uh, what is the album that you'd pass on to the next generation? Probably, well, definitely Laura Nero. And which record? Um, Probably New York Tenderberry because Save the Country is on Mm. there. Otherwise, I would say Eli and the 13th Confession. Um, Do I have any time to Well, I think think let's, um, and we're going to hear that at the end. So we'll hear that as the closing track. Um, But I'd just like to ask you, what is the thread that you feel connects all of those choices? Uh, starting with Bye Bye Baby. Yeah. Soul. That that every single one of those songs and pretty much anything I was seriously attracted to, uh, going all the way to Laura Nero, people were literally writing from their hearts. They weren't sitting there going, oh, let's see, what is a hit song lyric? That these were just outpouring of actual emotions. Um, uh, great sense of songwriting you know where everything fused together the musicians with the singer with the producer with the music with the lyrics um and uh you know and that is the definition of soul what is that deepest Mm. inside of you and what is it that you hope to leave behind with all of the work that you're that you've done and that you're continuing to do Uh, Just a sense of that you need to live your life in the most positive way possible. Understand that it's not just your responsibility to live your life, but to keep it, you know, clean and together for everyone. And um, uh, be an individual. Um, My whole thing is what is going to make me happy. And I judge everything the same. I judge my friends that way. I judge my work that way. I judge my front lawn that way. Is this going to make, if I take this action, is it going to make me happy or is it going to cause trouble? And I used to always pick the trouble path. There was some complexity about that that was attractive to me. Um, but, you know, it would lead me into these dark holes. It would lead me into things just being too complex. So as soon as I stripped it all down to happy, unhappy, um, I can make decisions faster. And, and if you choose the wrong thing, and I'm a real strong believer in this, the most important thing is make a decision. There is no fun being on the, in the middle ground where you're tortured that you're not doing it and scared that you know um just commit to it and if it's wrong go the other way the next day there you know there's uh you know there's a thousand no there's 10 trillion no's for every one yes 
So it, it ain't a big thing. It's not a failure. It's not a mistake. And I know that you've said also that you're best when you don't know what you're doing. Well, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And then as soon as I know, I, I get bored and I want to move on to something else. And I used to be very, um, I used to feel guilty that people refer to me as a musician because I was literally a musician who couldn't play, didn't even know what a bar was, still don't. Um, but a, a musician is a musical being. Um, but yeah, I don't, uh, in anything I do. I, did, I, I sold a thousand paintings before I realized you mix colors together to get other colors. So I'm, I'm best in the dark on a sunny day. Well, and that's where you can find Ali most days inside. <laughs> in the dark. In the dark. Um, uh, we're going to, you know, we're, I'm so delighted that we, we've, we've got this extra time. So we're still going to end with Save the Country by Laura Nairo. Uh, um, Nero. Nero. And let me say one thing. Yeah. The original version of, of Save the Country was up-tempo. Okay. And released uh, maybe four years before this version. This is the version most people know. She personally hated the up-tempo. I still love the up-tempo. I think I have the up-tempo. Oh, no, really? <laughs> yeah, she, the single version, Were right? she around, uh, she would come and personally pull it off of the turntable. Okay. But, uh, yeah, but the famous one is the one on the album, which is slow. But, but, but before we end with that, um, the, there's one song that we've missed, and I just want, even if we get a 30-second yeah. or one-minute story of you writing Neutron Dance for the Pointer oh, Sisters. That's a longer that's a longer story, but uh, it was originally written for a different movie. It was written for Streets of Fire. Uh, it was not accepted for that. It was replaced by um, I Could Dream About You. Um, and uh, was eventually picked up uh, for Beverly Hills Cop. Um, it's extremely autobiographical. Uh, it's really about someone could push the button tomorrow. We're all going to go up and smoke. So if you're not living the life that you want to live, uh, get up and change it, which to me is essentially doing the neutron dance. And probably the story you want to hear about it is that the communist government mistranslated neutron dance as neutron bomb. And in Pravda, the official newspaper of the communist government, I was named one of the 10 most dangerous subversives living in the United States. Which I would agree with. <laughs> because I preached the inevitability of nuclear war. And I mean, look at the lyric to that song. It is like so not. It's about self-motivation, not, you know, push the button. But also you unconsciously wrote the most perfect song for the mo most perfect scene in a film without realizing that that's where it would be. Yeah, no, no, never even saw the film, had no idea what it was about. Um, it was used as the temp track because the Pointer Sisters had cut it. Wasn't supposed to be a single. They already had five singles on this album. And um, Jerry Bruckheimer, it was his second film after Flashdance. And he heard it, he stuck it in the film, but then they sent um, packages of like cassettes um, to all the big songwriters, including me, saying, rip this song off, which they do in movies a lot because they don't want to pay for the publishing and, you know, they want to own it. 
And I just got so sick of everyone I knew telling me how much fun they had ripping me off. And I called Danny Simbello, who was my co-writer, said, we, we need to do this ourselves. So stripped Neutron Dance demo down to the drums, essentially wrote the same song, parallel lyric, one had a landlord, the other one has a bill collector. Cracks in the ceiling, uh, you know, the floor is buckling. Um, wrote the same song, used the same instruments, but changed the melody and the arrangement. And uh, for Beverly Hills Cop to replace Neutron Dance, and the, it, it didn't make it. So I ended up with zero songs until weeks before Beverly Hills Cop opened. Jerry Buck Bruckheimer goes into his garbage can looking for, uh, he just wanted a cassette to tape over comes across the one with uh, this other song, Stir It Up on it, loves the song, gets Patti LaBelle to sing it, never finds anything to replace Neutron Dance. And so I ended up with two songs and a Grammy. I've just been told we have another 20 minutes. Oh, boy. <laughs> More orange juice, please. I think, yeah, well, you've, you've done very well. You've All only right. had a sip. <laughs> I know, but so, now I'm going but in. But what I love about that is, um, you know, I, I remember seeing the film and um, and the T-shirt that Eddie Murphy is, oh is wearing. Isn't that your high school? Yeah, yes. Well, okay, here's what happened. Um, a couple weeks before the film opens, and I, I, I knew Eddie Murphy was a big deal, but, he, you know, he hadn't, like, carried a movie before. Thought the title, Beverly Hills Cop, was stupid. I was in a, a period of thinking my songwriting career was over. Um, it was the first time I was kind of off the charts. So, of course, your first thought is, you know, never going to happen again. So um, uh, I get called to a screening in his office, and he was on the Paramount lot, and I'm noticing all these billboards have Beverly Hills Cop on it. It's like, oh, my God, like, could this be something? And the movie uh, opens up. There were maybe three or four people in his office. And it was some of the other songwriters. And Eddie Murphy is in the back of this cigarette truck. And it is zooming through this city and smashing into cars. And But the lyric is matching perfectly. There's even a line, someone stole my brand new Chevrolet. And it like pounds into a Chevrolet. So I'm so taken that, oh, my God, I never even saw this film. And it's like I've written for it frame by frame. Um, and then I realized the city is Detroit. And this was really at the height of people saying such disgusting things about Detroit. Um, and no hope for it coming back. So I burst into tears. Just it was so emotional for me that maybe this film that had this thing about Detroit was going to bring me back from what I viewed as my career was over. And I burst into tears. Bruckheimer runs over to me and he says, you know, what's wrong? I mean, this is a comedy. And I'm going, oh, it's Detroit. And, you know, I, I, you know, I went to school there. I went to Mumford. And he said, I did too. So I never knew that. And then an hour later in the film, Eddie Murphy is in Beverly Hills. Not an hour, probably half. And um, 
It's the famous scene of him walking down the street and there's these two gay guys very flamboyantly dressed and, you know, he has this big reaction and I see he's wearing this Mumford t-shirt, which was my high school. So I started just crying again. I just weeped throughout the film. Um, And uh, it did literally save me. And that film still in Detroit is viewed as you know, the gone with the wind of, you know, all movies because, uh, you know, it was this guy, even though most of it took place in Beverly Hills, he had such Detroit attitude. So the fact that I had music that was associated with that, though when I did go back to Mumford, this was three decades later, you know, like, uh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I went back and it was my first time back And the high school put together a little program of hits from Beverly Hills Cop and the, you know, the orchestra class, you know, the dance classes all did it. They played every song from that. They performed every song from that soundtrack except Neutron Dance and Stir It Up. And this was my high school. It's like, I, I have the songs you're choosing to exclude, but for my life. It was a perfect occurrence because who makes a mistake like that? Well, and, you know, if you know Ali, you know she's had a thousand of these perfect occurrences yeah. and things just lining up over the years <laughs> with these this wonderful sort of um, fluidity and, you know, where all these dots connect and you have to kind of look at it so far back because yeah, it's just so incredible. you need so to be incredible. up on the moon to yeah. look down and go, oh, that connected there, that connected there. How did it feel being inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame last year? You know, almost everyone who gets into it says the same thing. You don't think it's a big deal. I viewed it as, you know, I kind of deserve to be there, but I'm being ignored. Uh, And then when it happens, it's the most thrilling thing ever. Because this ceremony that happens, uh, it's, it's filled with songwriters and... You know, songwriters, in terms of recognition, tend to be bottom rung. But there, it is so glorified. And then you see all these songwriters sing versions of their own songs or just tell you what it was like. It it was beyond thrilling. and um, Long overdue. eh, Well, I would say so, (laughs) yes. So I know that in your will, you've asked... (laughs) For everything in Willis Wonderland, also dubbed the Museum of Kitsch, to be preserved exactly as is, including all the sweet bowls. Yeah, uh, you mean the candy and everything. Sweets. Yes. Sweets Uh, candy. (laughs) Yeah, my feeling about myself always was I'm not going to be discovered artistically until long after I'm gone. I mean, these last couple of years, there has been a lot of recognition, but up until then, and even now, I mean, I'm going to walk out on the street, who the fuck knows who I am, so. Oh, there's a whole, have you not seen out the window? There's a whole, like. <laughs> They're all waiting. Cats, like, <laughs> lots of cats. The animals, yes. The animals have always related to me. Um, but so my thing was, that my house, which was built as the party house for MGM in 1937 and named by my friends Willis Wonderland because Boogie Wonderland 
gave me the the down payment for it, though it, it was not expensive because it was in the valley and, you know, who wanted to live in the valley? But it was, it looks like a big pig boat. And um, uh, so the, my friends dubbed it Willis Wonderland after Boogie Wonderland. Um, uh, and you'd just like it to be kept, you know, as it yes. is, as, as a reflection well, of what I, you've done. What I thought was, if no one really knows what I've done, you know, some people know I've written some songs, but they don't know about all the rest of the stuff that I would devise some kind of grand contest that would occur once or twice a year after I'm gone. And whoever wins it gets to spend a week to two weeks in the house with everything as I left it. And you know, everything's part of a collection with me and I save every scrap of paper that anything is written on. And you film everything. And I film everything. So they're going to have all this stuff to eventually put together who I really was as an artist. So I view it as my final but most important art piece to really try and figure out who I was. Do you think that connects back, you know, that desire to preserve and collect and document? Um, I know as a teenager, after your mom passed away, your dad remarried and everything that you owned was... Tossed. Yeah. I'm... Very certain that that's why I hang on to things. And um, also, I felt like, though a lot of people may not realize it, your belongings, your lifestyle, everything does say something about you. And um, I felt like I had found this perfect place, this house, to be me inside of. Um, you do still have one item from that time, which is the your stereo. Uh, yes, my parents' hi-fi I have. I also have my little typewriter that I bought with my uh, mowing lawn money. And I have my record player. Uh, and those were the only three things. Otherwise, everything was thrown out. And it's why I was at- attracted to digital technology so early, starting in 1991. Uh, because I felt like you could leave a footprint of who you were and someone could not come along and just throw it out unless they were an idiot and, you know, the digital copies were all gone. Um, But yeah, to me, it was always very much about preserving life. We talked a little bit about animals and how you've always had an affinity um, for the furry and the fuzzy and everything else. (laughs) And I know that you've had cats that have contributed to the color purple in all all seriousness, guys. That is another story. But I'd like to um, I'd like to talk about a very special seal. Or a sea lion? Uh, is it? A, is she? A sea he, lion. And is it? A, she. Okay. And her name is Ronan. And I saw a story on CNN now, maybe six years ago, uh, and my jaw just dropped because it was the first time a non-human mammal had been proven to have a sense of rhythm, which they thought parrots and cockatiels had, but that's mimicry. So if you change the speed of something, they're kind of pecking away at the same tempo. And uh, this sea lion, um, there was a, a video of her online with millions of views on it. She had massive fans. Uh, and she would only dance to two songs, Everybody, Backstreet Boys, and Boogie Wonderland, Earth, Wind, and Fire. 
So, uh, and eventually she dropped Backstreet Boys. So it's only Boogie Wonderland. And I see this video and the, in the CNN story, and they're changing the tempos of the record, slowing it way down, speeding it up where she is so frantically, you know, moving to it that you think her head's going to fly off. And I spent five years writing emails, wanting to go visit her. And out of the blue... Uh, last year, end of 2018, I, I get an email back on a Saturday night at midnight. We got your email. And I went up there uh, last November and met her. There's no question I was attached to this animal in a, a former life. She took to me immediately. And I went up there with the goal of wanting to write her original music. So they, I, I need to now get back in touch. I've just gone through all these deadlines and stuff, but um, I, w I wouldn't have to write a whole song. It's, you know, you could tell in eight bars, is she going for it or not? And um, I, I absolutely want to work with her because it, it's phenomenal that animal, animals can feel it the same way that we can. And she really acts out on it. So um, I am completely in love with Ronan the sea lion. I think the feeling is mutual from the photos that I saw. It yeah. appeared like there was a lot of kissing. L and totally. And, you know, they could lead her to someone to give a kiss. But this animal took one look at me and planted one on my lips. Unbelievably soft skin, by the way. If you get a chance <laughs> to kiss a sea lion or hug one, do it. Heart-shaped nose, perfect little black heart-shaped nose. And, uh, you know, this was, I don't know if I was a bee, a non-human being, or if she was human at some point, but uh, the connection of a lifetime. So I am just dying to visit her again. Uh, well, and I think it actually speaks in a wonderful way about this whole idea of orange juice for the ears. You know, yes. the, the fact that music... Yeah does so many incredibly weird and wonderful and the mysterious. Again. Yeah. yeah. And the vibrations, but also the words, the story. Um, you know, you've, it's like you have this ability to tell a story, which is already very powerful, but then you have all the frequencies and the sounds and the... Unbelievable, yeah. You know, and I feel like you are someone who's so tapped into that power of music to really communicate love yeah. and uplifting people and you know i think ronan is the best example well, ronan is certainly one of the only people who truly understood what boogie wonderland is ronan about. also That's isn't a isn't, isn't a person, a person. <laughs> i totally think of her as a person like i wish i could go to lunch with ronan today well, Ali, this is your life, and I have a surprise for you. Oh, God. Uh, literally, you would, if she came flipping in here, you would not even believe it. Uh, um, there is one other thing I'd like to ask before we, yes. we wrap this up. How is the orange juice, by the way? Uh, orange juice is wonderful. Perfect proportion of pulp to liquid. Okay. And I'm aware of every ounce of texture. Yeah. So how do you like seeing your face on it? I love seeing my face on it. And oh, Beady's on the well, Beady on the back of the orange juice, or maybe it's the front and I'm on the back. <laughs> but is perfect on the curve of the bottle. Um 
I am partially on the curve, which is good because it takes about 20 pounds off of me because that part of my body is missing. But that's the thing. You notice everything. Every, you know, you're, oh. so, you're so present. One thing that I love about you is, you know, the first time we met, and actually I was meant to say that at the beginning of the show and I didn't, I got, there's so much to say and Otis and, you know, um, but... You know, we met and it was meant to be an hour. Yeah. I think you may have in the back of your mind even had a timer on because I know <laughs> I how you are. And um <laughs> and one hour quickly slipped Nine. into yeah. yeah. And, you know, the number of times I mean we were talking about that Otis story and all of your computers went off at that <laughs> yeah. precise moment that you said I saw I was the only one that heard the plane crash. And I was oh, just God, that's yeah. Oh my God. But you know, the, the thing about Ali is you're with her and time just evaporates because you're so present. You're so you. alive. You see beauty in, you know, an orange juice carton. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and you just, you know, you, you just exude like energy and it's so wonderful. Um, and thank you. Yeah, well, you know, thank well, you. Well, we relate on on that. I, if you remember our first phone conversation, I basically thought, who's this bitch? Janet says she's important. I'm going to talk to her. Well, I, you know, I didn't, like, know anything. Jesus. <laughs> and, but that first phone conversation was at least a couple hours long. Yeah, no, it was like immediate. There was a, it was, you were like Ronan. Well, and you it, were another sea lion. Thank you. Do I have soft, velvety lips? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't had them placed directly. <laughs> they need to be placed in a certain spot for me to judge. Okay. Well, and on that side, uncomfortable. <laughs> We're pulling her off the air. We're going to time has really run out. <laughs> um, so, oh God, Ali, it's like, uh, what, what? How can we wrap this up? Um, Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your orange juice for the years and a condensed version of just your incredible life you. and history. And it is no doubt that, um, you know, like like all the greats, like Tesla, like w <laughs> William Blake, all these people that may have had, you know, not as much recognition in their time. My God, I mean, the, the ripples that you've left in this mm. world will be Thank felt you. forever. Um, wow. And Beatty is a superb being, so I take that seriously when you say that. Well, thank you very much. And we're going to end with uh, Save the Country by Laura Nero. <laughs> Which Beatty doesn't like, Which by the way. It's the only song in your choice <laughs> choices that I don't like. but And that's why we've left it to oh, the very last God. minute. But this is the record you'd pass on to the next generation. Yes, I'm not sure you're playing the right version of it, but yes. Well, let's find out. <laughs>